Welcome to the Steve Dunn Podcast. I am speaking today with Josh Jacobson. Josh is the CEO of Next Stage, where he and his team do social impact consulting. Josh moved to Charlotte in 2008 and has been working with nonprofits ever since, helping them get better at everything they do. Lately, Josh has been exploring the intersection between the nonprofit and the for-profit worlds and encouraging partnerships. He's convinced this is the future, but he sometimes meets with skeptical audiences on both sides of that equation. We had a great conversation about it. Here's Josh. Josh, you got your professional start in New York, working for the Juilliard School and the Manhattan Theater Club, and both of those were fundraising-type roles. And I wonder if you have ever thought about the fact that you launched your nonprofit career building exactly the most necessary and desirable skills. <laughs> That's a fascinating question to start off with. Let me think. Fundraising was not certainly not something that I um, set out to do, honestly. It was not a... Uh, I was hired for an endowment campaign, not knowing the definition of the word endowment. I was actually... I looked it up just ahead of the interview and sat down to... Well, you figured it out. And, did, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think most people, the path to the nonprofit sector is... Uh, a lot of times it's following a particular passion. And I think it's a little bit like politics in the sense that once you get, you, you think it's one thing, and then once you get into it, you find out that it's a lot more about fundraising than sure. you ever imagined before. <laughs> and that here's you who kind of comes into it, becoming, you know, hitting the ground running with respect mm-hmm. to the part that I think often gets overlooked. And uh, I can imagine that it has served you well throughout your career because it's the one aspect of the work that really is common completely across the board. Everybody's got to figure it out. Well, I think that's right. And, you know, there, there's a healthy degree of sales in it, you know, there, but I think fundraising, you know, you're talking to uh, people and you're having to figure out what the value proposition is to them of the mission of the organization that you're representing. I think fundraising sharpens your capacity to think in human centered ways and, and you know find the find your reason what's your why and then align what we do to your why and try to make that you know connection so i definitely think you know as a small business owner fundraising has been a useful skill set certainly overlapping the process yes. of sales versus the po- the process of soliciting donations and my own experience is that there's oftentimes a lot of reluctance on the part of people involved with nonprofits to get into it. And some of that is based on uh, a feeling that it's it's like unseemly. People are, I think, mm-hmm. sheepish or sort of embarrassed about the process of asking for money. I think a lot of it, and maybe more so, is just not knowing the nuts and bolts of how to do it. Mm. And some of the most illuminating conversations that I've had with folks about the subject is about connecting the mission and your belief in it to the conversation that you're having with a prospective donor. And the fact that to the extent that you truly believe in what you're doing, it's it's easy to talk about in a passionate sort of way, yeah. in a genuine sort of way, and that that's exactly the sort of thing that resonates with the the audience that you're talking to. Is that sure. is that part of it for you? I think that's fair. You know, uh, if you can remember your first phone job, did you remember a job where you were you had to call people on the phone? And, yes. And you overcome the fear, right? There comes a point where you're just very good. The, on the first phone. time is really hard. It's like I. It's like when my daughter went to sell G- Girl Scout cookies. Like knocking on that first door was really hard, and then knocking on that second door was less hard, and then the tenth door was just no problem at uh, all. Exactly. There's a bit of a dance and a game and a, and a um, skill there. There's a there's an art and science to it, and the longer you do it, the more you begin to you know center the challenge of it, you know, and the thrill of it. You know, the thing that I miss most about being uh, a fundraiser really is just the win. You know, when you get the, the first time I raised, I raised a million dollars. I had a million dollar ask, you know, I haven't had many of those, but I did have one uh, and it was a success. And I mean, there's no better high. Your own directness in making the ask is itself 
a reflection of your own belief in this thing. Your, your willingness to go to somebody and say, look, this is important. It's important enough for me to set up this meeting with you yep. and to go out on a limb and, and get outside of my comfort zone maybe as a board member uh, and do this. Man, and of course, my experience is more with board members and volunteers sure. than with professional fundraisers. But you you cut your teeth sort of at, in the major leagues in a way, right? Yeah, absolutely. We call, you know, the experience of, of working in New York and particularly in your in your 20s working in uh, the nonprofit field, it's a teaching hospital. So everywhere you go are these like just luminary people who are um, have Wikipedia uh, articles written about them. Uh, and they're taking the time to sort of train you and pour knowledge into you because you, they need you to, to kind of fulfill their vision and, and, um, you know, be successful. So yeah, the, the seven plus years I was in New York were, were, you know, going in as a novice, not knowing what an endowment was, not knowing anything about fundraising strategy really, and coming out of it, having done a master's class with some of the brightest uh, people I'll ever meet. So you go there and you don't know what an endowment is and you come (laughs) out of it and you have this ability to do fundraising. You understand it at a very high level. You come to Charlotte, not only armed with this background, but also in an interesting moment, because it's 2008. Mm -hmm. The world is in the grip of an economic recession. And in your own words, the nonprofits of the world were free falling. Yeah. And so the world is changing all around while your life is changing uh, geographically and in terms of your career trajectory. So how do you find yourself and how do you find your footing in Charlotte? Yeah, it's crazy. You know, if I were to uh, advise that young man as he uh, thought about uh, quitting his job. So first of all, quitting the job, uh, it kind of in with no plan. So I didn't know anyone here. I was moving here to to be with my now wife. Consulting, I feel like, really found me. I didn't. Uh, I feel like I uh, yet again stumbled into it. I, my life has been very much touched by this. Some would call it luck. Some would call it, you know, um, kismet. But uh, I've definitely uh, benefited from sometimes just blindly doing things. But you come and you show up. The world's in calamity. The size of the pie is getting smaller really fast. And then at the same time, the sources of funding and assistance that nonprofits had come to rely on suddenly weren't quite so reliable anymore. Yeah. And so and you step into this town around in into those circumstances and you get into consulting. And I'm I'm curious if you picked up on any common threads of the ones who navigated those choppy waters yeah. successfully. How did, how did they do it? Yeah, we actually did a, uh, I did a report, um, a, a research project back in 2012, 2013, trying to figure that exact thing out. The ones that succeeded typically didn't uh, cut marketing or fundraising. So, you know, uh, it's the classic mistake when things are on fire to, to cut the only people who can bring resources into the organization. So it's the larger organizations with larger de- development teams with more marketing dollars spent. They were the ones that, you know, made it through uh, the recession fairly well. We were really counting on board members and their networks to make things happen. So, you know, the classic fundraising plan in 2006, Charlotte, was get a really great board of directors who all have, you know, uh, reach into uh, the you know, middle management of the banks, have a big gala event, you know, charge $10,000 and, you know, that's your big fundraiser. It's called the Benavon model, which is an old, you know, there's a Benavon organization, a firm like my firm back in the uh, 1990s that, you know, created this idea of, you know, training health and human service organizations how to raise money. And it was a pretty simple equation. Get your board to invite people to come tour your facility do that all year long, invite them to a big gala at the end of the year, lock the doors, pass the, the hat, and, and raise a lot of money. And Charlotte nonprofits did that very effectively. Uh, as we all know, the rubber chicken lunch and the you know, galas that are uh, everywhere. And then the recession hit, and those you know, stopped being a thing. And, and we're seeing it again with COVID that you know, we can't do events the way we used to do it. So that, you know, the slow death of the gala, slow death of the you know, um, benefit lunch, comes with it, you know, what, well, then what replaces that? You know, how do we raise money if we don't have an event? Um, and that's where I think the big, you know, sea change happened for Charlotte post-recession was we got to be raising money from a scientific thought. You know, we have to have an equation of how we do this. We have to have a, a theory of uh, how we raise money that is 
different than just, you know, counting on our board to do all the heavy lifting for us. Well, your work today is channeled through the company Next Stage. I, I gather that the name of the company has something to do with uh, preparing your community uh, to to take it to the next level in that way. Oh, that's right. I mean, nonprofits have a growth mandate. It's the only institutions, you know, we're just not allowed to exist. You know, I always liken it to a bagel shop. Like your, your favorite bagel shop, you're not going in and kind of quizzing the owner, like, what's your growth plan? Are you planning to to uh, increase are you franchising because my desire to eat here is really based on whether or not you're going to you know take this to scale so this idea that that nonprofits are, are kind of built with the idea that no matter what you've just achieved there's an expectation that you're thinking about what the next rung on that ladder is then you know next stage is here to work with you at every rung of that ladder you made the arguably dubious choice when you first launched the company to get after emerging organizations. Yeah. So you're, you're simultaneously launching an entrepreneurial business of your own and focusing your attention on a client base that has the least uh, capability of uh, paying for your yeah. services. But it must have worked out because you made your first full-time hire in 2017. And as of Earlier this afternoon, you're, you're showing six employees on, right. on your website, so it must be going well on some level. Uh, how's it been for you as a business owner? Yeah, it's been amazing, and uh, that's that's so true. You know, uh, choosing in 2014 when we launched to, you know, kind of pioneer at the uh, at the uh, out outskirts of social good. You know, working with those emerging organizations. Uh, I now think of that as probably the shrewdest move we made because uh, it allowed us to take risks. You know, we're beginning to grow past the the Charlotte uh, region, and uh, that that excites me as well. I want to get into how you talk to your clients about risk and opportunities, and also how you think about risk and opportunity for Next Stage itself. Yeah. Uh, I want to lay the foundation for that by telling you that one of the most insightful things I've ever heard about risk and opportunity was from you. Uh, mm -hmm. It was while we were both working on Carolina Actor Studio Theater, and we were trying to figure out whether to move from Plaza Midwood to NODA. Yep. And we as a board were really focused on the risk of the move. We're talking about taking on a lease. We're talking about a larger space. We're moving to a place mm -hmm. that uh, where we weren't... Uh, as known, uh, it, it, uh, there was a lot of talk about the risk of moving, mm -hmm. and maybe it seems obvious in retrospect and basic, but it was a revelation to me at the time when you said, guys, yes, we should be thinking about the risk of moving, but you've also got to be thinking about the risk of not moving. Like right. what, it's not as though inaction is a safe bet always across the board, yes. which is how we were thinking about it. We were thinking sure. we could just keep doing the same thing that we're doing. And in, it turned out uh, that moving was absolutely the right thing to do. Uh, if we had stayed, the space was totally unsuitable for many reasons. And in very short order, it was torn down. It right. was gone. It was right. like literally gone. So we would have been completely out of luck. It would yep. have been much worse. But I've always remembered that. And, and it's, it's informed how I've thought about risk and opportunity hmm. ever since. And so I guess through that lens, how do you describe your company? Because I, yeah. I struggled in preparing with this conversation, to be honest <laughs> with you, but to wrap my hands around exactly what it is you do, because there are there's so much breadth to it. Yes. Yeah. And that's unique, I think, to uh, being a, a firm that does what we do here in Charlotte. So I always say if I was in Atlanta, there are 25 next stages in Atlanta. And so I, you would, you would necessarily have to uh, focus your uh, services either on a specific sector. Like I would only work in the arts or I'd only work with uh, health organizations. I'd probably also have to think about, you know, what are those services? Do I do mostly board training? Do I do mostly strategic planning? Do I do mostly fundraising? Uh, are we mostly focused on marketing and branding? Are we a search firm? All of those things I've just uh, shared with you are things we do. I uh, sat down this morning and actually wrote out, knowing we were going to be talking, I started writing uh, what is our you know theory of change because that's the thing we help nonprofits uh, identify is you know what what is your theory of the change that you're going to make and, and how are you orienting yourself to that growth uh, to sustainability? How are you building? 
a business plan and a business model around what you want to accomplish. Um, and so while I do that professionally with nonprofits and, and now companies, uh, turning that lens on our, our own firm has been a um, has been a, a journey, and and the last couple of years have helped us uh, refine that uh, for sure. Back to my bagel shop guy. You know, when I go in and talk to the owner of the bagel shop, I'm talking to the owner. I'm talking to the person who has the ability to make a decision. The nonprofit model, there is no one person in charge. So that idea of bringing everyone together around a shared purpose for a, a nonprofit organization that that mission is a collectively owned construct you know it's something everyone has a voice in uh, and if we want people to come alongside the mission we have to inspire them with the vision of where we want to take that mission where are we going what are we trying to solve what is the big idea and if we can bring people to be inspired by where we're going we'll you know roll up our sleeves and do the mission of the organization i used to be one of these people that would hear about mission and vision and my goodness if you scheduled a retreat or something where the point was going to be to get together and come up with a mission statement or something like that i would try to find somewhere else that i needed sure. to be what i figured out or what i think i figured out about it was that if you don't have a clear mission if you if you haven't thought this stuff through really clearly uh, and done the work to put it into words, w once you endeavor to do that, what you find out is that all the people sitting around the table have got slightly different and sometimes very different ideas yep. about what the point is of this thing that we're doing. And we may not agree. And only after you figure it out, do you know how you have a reference point to check your ideas against mm -hmm. you know somebody josh jacobson suggests hey you might want to get into this partnership or something and we need to look at each other and say well is this consistent with the mission mm -hmm. right with that we all know what it is and i've seen more than one organization struggle with defining itself and and it it really is in the details i've come at the longer i've been at this the more i think that vision is more important than mission and theory of change is actually more important than both. And our values are the most important thing. So the idea that like what we stand for is actually what people are, are donating to, signing up for. It's the, it's the essence of you know, who we are as, as an institution. Because we are Let's made up Let's say you're working with a client. Yeah. And do you go in and do you start then with values? Is we that, do. You, okay, Absolutely. so you get, you, each one of those things that you mentioned, values, uh, vision, theory of change, yeah. you go through those. And yep. do they build on each other? They do, yeah. So uh, it, it does start with values and guiding principles. So our, you know, often they're already in the room. We just haven't articulated them. We haven't really aligned to them. Uh, and we have to be prioritized. You know, there's only, we can't live every value, right? We might think they're all important, but we have to have processes. So we believe our equation is values plus processes equal internal culture and external brand. So when we have values that are backed up by process, uh, that establishes what it's like to be inside this organization and what people will believe in us outside the organization. So we start there because it's the building blocks. Values and guiding principles are unlikely to change very much over time talking to you about this one gets the impression that you derive personal fulfillment from your work oh for sure yeah i mean i found the i i, I feel like the luckiest guy right i uh you know uh blindly found my way into this world and found you know found the thing that i think i'm that is the perfect amalgam of my skill set uh my experiences and my passion uh, I found the, the absolute Venn diagram center of all that. There's a business aspect to this. Uh, you work with a lot of nonprofits, but Next Stage is not a nonprofit. That's and right. I will say that I've personally seen you give of yourself many, many times. We first got to know each other in a context <laughs> of you giving of yourself. And I've witnessed you give of yourself, of yourself professionally many times. But you can't do that forever because you got to keep you got to pay your bills. You got to pay right. your employees, and you also are a professional. And I will say, we, we in the mediation business struggle with this a little bit too because it is a calling. And and a lot of the stuff that you just said about your personal satisfaction rings true for me as well. And I feel very fortunate about it. But like you, uh, we are a population of professionals who are frequently called upon to donate our professional services um, almost with an expectation that that's 
that the answer is going to be yes. Right. <laughs> I don't. I don't know if it's like that for you, but I'll bet it probably <laughs> is. And and I know that your natural inclination is to want to accommodate as much of that as you possibly can. And I just wonder if that's been a struggle for you as you've been trying to figure out like how to how to make this work. Yeah, definitely through the growth. So as you noted, we're up to uh, six full time um, staff now. Uh, and, uh, you know, as you take on more, um, more direct reports and, and you grow, uh, this isn't just me in a suitcase, you know, in, in a briefcase anymore. This is me um, having to grow uh, a firm and ensure that our, our sustainability. So those hard d- decisions have become harder, I think, as, as time has gone on. You know, when I first started Next Stage, it was just me. I did a bunch of stuff that was, I was just passion projects, unpaid, low, you know, just give me a dollar so I can call you a paying client, you know, that, that sort of, um, mentality. I'm still drawn to things that are passion projects. I'm still, there are things I make allowances for. I encourage that of our team. You know, I had, I had, um, one of my, my teammates come to me and say, I believe in this, you know, I I think we should do this. And, um, that's great. You know, I, I want that sort of passion uh, to come forward. We just have to be really measured. We can't do everything. Uh, you know, you can't, everything can't be passion. We're a weird, man. We're, we're not a normal business. There's the, the, and Charlotte has really not seen anything quite like this uh, in its uh, time. And um, you're doing a lot of interesting yeah. work about the ways in which for-profit businesses and nonprofit organizations can work together and collaborate yeah. with each other and mutually benefit from each other. And one of the things that's interesting to me that I think may be underappreciated is there's a lot of uh, not just traditions and um, historical sort of artifacts and habits that we've formed as a culture and a society, but also like legal structures. So it's like the corporate legal structure. For example, the the mandate of publicly traded corporations to sort of pursue profit uh, above all else. And I don't say that like in any kind of like to cast aspersions. I'm, I think I'm just coldly describing yes. the law. Yeah, <laughs> right. exactly. like, like you can get sued exactly. <laughs> as a corporation if you don't try to maximize profits. Right. And that, at the same time that there's a logic to that and it's uh, it has caused you know so many things that we kind of take for granted to exist the way they do it's also a limiting factor uh, yeah. when you have organizations that would like to do other things that would like to do more sure. and a lot of times what you're uh, what you're working on these days it seems like you're working with nonprofits and you're working with businesses and you're working on nonprofits and businesses That's kind right. of put them together and and you've recently put a ton of work into a document is is it called profit and purpose that, yeah is that's that right. the name of the social good report yes tell me about that yeah so you know this is uh, if there's anything that's been centered as a you know passion project for us really going back to you know, the very early days of next stage I really believe in in independent not uh, foundation you know these are institutions that are set up to uh, hire professional staff to find high quality uh, organizations to invest into and not finding those here I turn my attention to companies uh, because we have a whole bunch of those you know this is you know this is a, a, a banking town it, we're, we're only in like third or fourth generation philanthropy so if you go up into the northeast and to the rust belt you're talking you know six seventh you know generation going back many many years uh, giving as a, an expression of family. We don't really have as much of that either. So a lot of people from other places who don't necessarily feel a sense of ownership about social good in their new city uh, and a lack of foundations, we have to really start to turn our attention to like, where where's the money going to come from? Like, where where do dollars come from? And, and our history has always been the companies have been, you know, a big part of that. But with the recession and with, you know, what used to be a CEO driven, you know, philanthropic uh, culture what's left you know what 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 is how does it work now you know and the fact that there really wasn't a a roadmap uh, and every company was seemingly doing it differently uh, and we do believe that there's this you know potential wellspring that um, you know companies uh, ultimately could be the drivers of um, prosperity you know we now have a, a theory of change that that suggests that if we're going to accomplish the things we want to accomplish uh, from a social good perspective uh, in uh, the U.S., we need to harness capitalism in service to that. Like, if we could draw revenue out of, uh, you know, elective uh, taxation out of companies, uh, if we could find the reason why they would want to do that, 
if we could motivate them to want to contribute into um, the nonprofit sector, uh, the theory goes if we could make it 3% of GDP, we could very likely accomplish all the goals of social good. We could largely eradicate homelessness. We could largely address economic mobility on a massive scale. We could fund uh, early education uh, in ways that would be radically um, changing of the world. I wonder um, how much of the challenge there relates to a problem of measuring. You described uh, the 2% of the GDP as uh, that goes to nonprofits as the dollars that are donated to nonprofits, which I think is interesting because I think other types of organizations contribution to GDP is probably measured by their output as opposed to their input. You right. know what I mean? It, yes. It seems like the output of nonprofits may be harder to measure, but of greater value than two percent. And if there, if if a nonprofit is profit making in the sense that it's putting out into the world more value than it's taking in, yep. it actually does probably represent more than two percent total value to the to our nation, yes. if you will, and. I encounter a very similar thing in my world. I don't. I, don't, I hate to like keep bringing it back no, to mediation. You brought it back to mediation <laughs> a couple of times, so I'll, I'm going to feel free to do it. But I have conversations with people all the time about how they're valuing various aspects of of a deal, of a potential deal, and one of the biggest struggles that we face is that the value of the intangible and unmeasurable things, the things that are subjective in nature. Uh, People assign like a zero value to that right. when in fact it's often the highest value item in right. the deal. And a lot of times what that item is specifically is resolution of the dispute itself. Just right. having this problem be over with yep. is worth more than the difference between the money you're going to get and the money that you wanted to get. You see what I'm saying? Yes, so it's, it's a great deal, but you just can't perceive it because you're not measuring the thing properly. And what you described, not only the GDP issue, but also I think the value to the companies that you're working with, yes. right? Of, of their commitment to social impact and their engagement with community-based organizations is just hard to measure. It and is. if you can figure out a way to do that, then uh, we're and, working and on it. I know you are. Yeah. <laughs> How's it going? Well, it's going uh, well, I think. I mean, we're we're still at the you know nascent stage of, of trying to build that value proposition. Because you're exactly right. You know. Um, trying to find the marketplace is often about, you know, the cost benefit analysis, you know, what am I willing to spend is translates into what are the benefits I'm receiving. Uh, and again, to use the bagel shop, uh, I'm hungry. I love these bagels. You know, the schmears perfect. Um, it's, I know exactly what I'll spend on that. And that's a transaction that I can, I can, you know, um, embrace, so much about the nonprofit experiences is based on trust and uh, faith, right? We, we, we believe because of the outputs uh, in the outcomes. And part of it is that we, don't, we do not provide nonprofits the resources to invest in that measurement. So, you know, we've demonized overhead for nonprofits for so long. You know, we've turned it into this idea that, you know, 85% of every dollar needs to go to direct services. You know, I'm not paying for you to, you know, for some, you know, executive director salary, you know, and um, obviously, there, I mean, there's been a big shift in that thinking over the last uh, several years. Uh, a thinker, Dan Pallotta, uh has a tremendous uh, TED talk on this about, you know, everything you, you know about charity is dead wrong. That ultimately, uh, that that thought that my dollars are best spent into mission uh, is a short term, but not a very good long term investment. Uh, and that if I really wanted to uh, help that nonprofit ultimately address the thing at once, I would want 100% of that dollar to go towards marketing or to go towards raising money because that's going to help draw more resources in. You know, if I was really thoughtful and not selfish about how my dollar is spent, but instead owning the mission and the impact, um, we would want our nonprofits to act like companies, right? We would want them to invest in R&D. We would want them to be able to articulate their value proposition because we know that that's important towards long-term um, success. Uh, but we treat nonprofits in this charity mindset uh, and we put it over in this other space that lives independent of the world and, and ultimately that's what companies have done you know our corporate social responsibility strategies have been about you know taking the idea of investing into nonprofits and 
kind of othering it. So inside the corporate uh, structure, the CSR executive typically doesn't report into human resources, which would be one area that we would expect employee engagement, employee retention, the the values of the organization. Well, you mentioned employee yeah. retention, yeah. And, and you mentioned that because that's one of the tangibly valuable things yes. that can be described to corporate decision makers as a salutary consequence of getting involved in community. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the adoption of social good. So to your point, com- corporations, a hundred percent of what they do has to be uh, profit generating. You know, it has to be about the, the, the success of the business. So what is this thing? Corporate social responsibility, right? On its surface, the idea that a, a company is donating, I'm using air quotes again, uh, into community, if they're doing it, it must mean that they believe that there's that that's a in service to their core goal, uh, you know, of capitalism and of the uh, success of the company. So, right off the bat, we have to see that this is not philanthropy, right? This is not you know giving you know the owner of the company, the CEO, the 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 workforce, they can contribute personally, but the corporation, you know, ultimately legally can't donate. Uh, it is investing in ways that will ultimately um, support uh, the company. So if we accept that, um, why and how has it uh, manifested? So, you know, early it was about the consumer. So uh, cause marketing was based on a business to consumer concept that consumers are deciding what brands they engage with based on how they feel about, you know, whether it's a good brand or bad brand. Does this brand care about the community? And so it was through the marketing uh, lens. That's why a lot of um, you know events, event sponsorship, the sorts of things you see are about getting eyeballs on the logo of the, the company. Then uh, we had the millennial generation grow up observing that uh, because that was really kind of the 80s and 90s was the big cause marketing push. Millennials grew up in that culture, started joining these the workforce of these companies expecting to find a company that cares about community and uh, the, did they become cynical about absolutely it? the dichotomy between you know what we are telling the, the world and what the workplace culture is like is uh just you know something that was unsatisfactory to yeah. the millennial there's a comedian bo burnham who does a pretty absolutely. effective or you know what i'm talking absolutely, about he does yeah. a pretty good send up of this sort uh from the perspective i think of like a marketing professional so, uh, talking about how we can leverage the appearance yes. of our values, the the ostensible values, our stated values, how we can leverage those for crass commercial purposes. I think it, it concludes with the yeah, he's making a pitch along the lines of like, "Will you support wheat thins in the fight against Lyme disease?" <laughs> right, exactly. You know, that yep. sort of thing, and I imagine that that's what that's the risk, right? That's yes. the the risk when you endeavor. It's a little bit, I was reminded in this way of the the sort of like corporate health initiatives where they'll give you some kind of an incentive to like take the stairs instead of the elevator, or yeah. quit, quit smoking or something like that, and the th- or lose weight. Sure. And the theory is that it's going to help somehow on healthcare costs and healthcare premiums. And something. So there's a profit motive to it, but at the same time, you're doing good. Everybody, yep. everybody kind of feels good about yep. that, you know, and uh, the risk, it seems, is that of cynicism and disillusionment Absolutely. just concluding that it's all just a bunch of hooey i mean do, do you hang the towel at the hotel or do you throw it on the floor right right yeah exactly oh right yeah exactly the, the idea there being that like this is this is suggested to you that like hey you know if you want to save the world if you want to like protect the environment like yeah. we don't need to wash your towels every day when in or clean your room yeah. every day when in reality that's also hitting the hotel's bottom line because they're saving money on staff and, and, and so exp- our cynicism says uh oh i'm not gonna let this hotel you know, make a nick off of me, right? I'm gonna. I'm throwing this towel. I'm gonna throw it on the throw floor. all the towels, right, even right. the ones I didn't use. Exactly right. right. No. So you know that that cynicism in an increasingly cynical world, right? Where we are, uh, I'm Jerry Maguire everywhere. Uh, increasingly cynical world. Um, so you know, yes, that dichotomy, authenticity, you know, being the challenge. And this is what everyone who throws, it, you know, kind of what we're trying to do with social impact for business. Ah, it's just for show, right? Well. You know, it's just like language, right? We, we change language even as we know uh, the racist still exists. We change language even as we know that the uh, misogynist still exists. But we change the language so that the next generation is hearing that language differently and they grow up more authentically believing the thing. So we have to take the kind of long game with any of this stuff. 
So we have a millennial coming in as the part of the workforce. We start to see companies wanting to see volunteerism because they saw that that is a way, transactional, you might think. Cynically, we might think that's you know HR just trying to. You know what you're getting at though, though? You're getting to reality, right? You're getting to the difference between idealism and philosophical purity versus the physical world that we live in that's constrained by physics and uh, chemistry and human. Yes, and back to your thoughts about how fundraising helps you. I have raised money from people who think very differently than me about why I do what I do. I know that their business case is what has brought them to the table with a big you know, checkbook. And I have to make a decision. Do I accept these dollars, right? These dollars that are very, like almost diametrically opposed to how I see the world. And I have to decide how much good would those dollars do? Is it on me to make a decision? Sir, I'm gonna rip your check up in front of you because you're not pure enough of the mission to uh, to to fund what we're going to do. Now, there's some extreme examples of that. You yeah. know, when I take a check from somebody who is a uh, who, uh, who to uh, for an environmental cause who's out like literally polluting uh, and is the biggest polluter in town. Sure, I would be careful there. There's a show I don't remember which streaming service it's on. It's called Dope Sick. Oh, oh, oh. are you familiar with oh, this? Great, it's, it's really, really good. Yeah, yeah, it was really well done, and it's all about the opioid ex- epidemic and with a particular focus on that, yeah. Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family and. There's a memorable scene in the show where it's exactly what you're talking about. They kind of, the, the, the people from the pharmaceutical company come down to this little town in West Virginia where people are agitating about the fact that their whole community is being devastated by Oxycontin. And they, they essentially try to buy them off. They say, yep. we, we want to make a big contribution to your fund. And uh, it's kind of implied that, you know, and you're also going to start keeping your mouth shut and kind of get in line. And the folks have this very brief, it's a TV show, so it's sure. very oversimplified. And the, the scenario is set out as though it's totally clear that these big bad executives are trying to buy off these yes. honorable um, West Virginian citizens. Reality is, I, I can totally respect anybody coming down on any side of any particular question, as long as there's some acknowledgement that this stuff is hard. Sure. Yet, and that a simplistic view about anything is is fraught with error. Absolutely. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, it, it, it's rarely so black and white, right? So, yeah, Purdue Pharma investing into you know that that group is is usually the David and Goliath moment that we're we're thinking about. But I'm thinking more about the gray, and we live in a gray world, right? So. I don't always recycle. Oh, I'll admit it now. I don't always recycle everything. I've thrown stuff away in the trash. Now, should someone accept who is all about recycling accept my gift, right? Am, am I pure enough of heart? Am I living it, right? Where do you draw the line between somebody who is, you know, uh, we don't have to, it can't be Hitler on the right, you know, right. And, and, a, uh, and Gandhi on the left and say, you know, we, we're one or the other. Everyone is in the middle. So that idea that I've accepted dollars from someone who I know votes differently, who in their own practices, in their own family, in their own, I've heard, right? I've taken dollars from someone who I don't think is the ideal donor to the cause that I'm raising money for, but I've had to, to think to myself, will the dollars do good? Uh, and uh, what is the downside risk ultimately as a nonprofit of taking these dollars in the first place? For that matter, when uh, a major corporation is engaging in a commu- an initiative involving community-based organizations, and if they're sure. just doing it for optics or for you know to look good or to make yeah. money directly, is that objectionable, or is that just one of the consequences of the corporate structure, the legal structure, sure. the historical context in yes. which that corporation exists well, and right. has to do what it's doing? That doesn't, you know, they're not. You know, is so. What do you do? I mean, if you're if you're not gonna, I think it's easy. I think for someone who is what I would consider to be uh, overly idealistic to yeah. to conclude that the only endeavor that's worth endeavoring in is a f- radical fundamental restructuring of all of society. I, I get it. You know, yeah. I don't even necessarily disagree, yeah. but in the meantime, you know, yeah. we've all got like, you know, if we're lucky 70 or 80 years to do something to try to make world. a difference. To try. Yeah. And this, and a lot of these problems existed before we were born and they're going to exist long well, after we're gone, but you got to do something now. Absolutely. You, well, I mean, our entire society, everything about wealth accumulation is built on all sorts of unethical practices, right? So, I mean, you can trace everything back enough if you want to get back to 
through a cynical lens that no one is pure enough to uh, contribute to anything. Really. Well, now you're getting into like right. like religion. Sure. Well, <laughs> yeah. right. Exactly. I mean, yeah. You like know, if if we are all burdened by sin on some level, right. then what what is any of us that's doing? Right. Like putting on a play. <laughs> so, so so much of it is is comes down to making judgment calls every day, right? Yeah. I mean, you're making judgment calls about who you do business with, who you hire, who you relate to, uh, et cetera, uh, all the time. No different for a nonprofit to have to think that way. But I, I, I believe, and I think our, you know, our city is, is a proof of this, um, that the best way to create change is from within. So I'm a big believer. Uh, I see myself as an advocate. I see our firm as an advocacy organization. And what that is, is I believe that there's the system. I, I, I'm doing kind of a bullseye. The system's in the center. And activism is outside of the center. And the, ad, the uh, advocate stride, straddles the line between the system and activism. And their job is to continually try to negotiate between the two sides. That uh, the system wants to make the system reinforced, right? Uh, when you join gung-ho into buying in and drinking the Kool-Aid of whatever the thing is that's systemic, um, any criticism is uh, perceived negatively, and if you're an activist, you believe the system is wrong to its core. This extremism, which I would say is mirrored in so many ways in society right now, is ultimately antithetical to progress. Progress is by straddling a line, uh, and my job is to try to, and, and I'm rejected ultimately by both sides. Activists see see what I do as too systemic, and the system see me as way too radical. Uh, and I like it that way. I don't ever want to be a, a, a you know, sort of uh, formally welcomed by either side because I ultimately believe that the answers are not there. The answers are in the, the negotiation between those two. So I, I appreciate that they exist. I recognize that they are needed. But my job is actually to be the intersection of those two things. So a lot of what we're doing with businesses and nonprofits is, is giving in to our core identity, which is the intersection. You know, we believe in mutualism. We believe in everything's related to each other. And our job is to try to bring sides together and find a mutually agreeable way in which everybody wins. You know, we're talking about win-win-win strategy. Well, let me, all right. So I think we've done a pretty effective job of uh, lampooning uh, the people that we interact with in life who whose notions we might consider to be overly simplistic or idealistic or unrealistic. But let me articulate a concern sure. sort of from the other side. Yeah. There is a risk, I think. We've been describing sort of what it's like to work with the for-profit corporations in this context, but there's risk, it seems to me, to the nonprofit organizations in this context as well. And that relates to mission. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, we always, we're encouraged to think as nonprofits of ways to try to partner with corporations to get money to advance what the mission is. And a lot right. of times the type of work that you can do toward that end is related to the type of work that you do as an organization that you're actually passionate about. So for right. example, if you are a theater that produces new, you know, like contemporary plays that have, that address con challenging themes for adults in the English language or whatever, uh, and it's pitched to you a partnership with the Chiquita Corporation or something to do some sort of theatrical uh, presentation sure. you know, at the corporate headquarters, there is a risk that now all of a sudden you are an organization that puts on productions for corporations. You yes. know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like the, the classic example is like the theater that like launches a sandwich shop or something sure. like that. Yeah. Now you're in the sandwich business. That's and if right. you, if you take on a, a lease or if you buy a piece of property, all of a sudden now you're in the real estate business, you That's know, right. it's like, well, you got to keep an eye on what business you're in. And so I wonder how you think that through with an organization sure. and how they protect uh, their mission from, you know, from the side of the community based organization. Yeah. So, I mean, part of it is that I actually don't think mission is as sacrosanct as so many do. So, um, what does Apple do? What's its mission, right? Is, is Apple's job to produce technology? Uh, is it its job to, uh, it probably feels that its mission is something much less tangible and less specific. I think mission is important because we have to have an understanding of what we're getting up to do every day. But I actually think mission can change over time. Um, you know, the horse-drawn buggy association of, you know, 1896 had a change, right? It had to decide, are we a transportation association? 
because we are here comes the car are we are we a horse-drawn buggy group because we're going to see ourselves out of business unless we adapt to and see the bigger role that we play you know we're a transportation association as things change in transportation we are going to embrace change you know corporations tend to think this way you know ibm every 3m every major you know successful company has has navigated change and that goes back to uh, my thought that it's our theory of change that's actually the most important thing. Because if we think only through the lens of what we do, we're forgetting that there's a lot of trend line and stuff happening around us. And we can see ourselves into uh, being obsolete if we're so focused on like what we do that we miss the boat on Again, you know, the Again, it's the risk of inaction, right? It's risk of inaction. Stasis. Exactly. So, uh, you know, to the person that would say, you know, are we going to get into the business of serving court? Well, we've been doing that through fundraising for a long time. So we get into the gala business or we get into the 5K race or we get into the we are creating edifices to create uh, a marketplace. You know, Goodwill is my favorite, you know, go to what does Goodwill do for a living? Well, I'm sure you know um, that Goodwill is a workforce uh, development organization, but I bet you a vast majority of people don't know what Goodwill does with the money that it raises. Uh, it's a thrift shop, uh, right. you know, and, and it's an amazing one that has, uh, you know, built a marketplace so, so strongly that they are rarely have to raise money. You know, they are so earned revenue driven. Uh, you know, many of the, the nonprofits that were founded, you know, pre-1960, you know, based themselves on a earned revenue strategy because that's something you can control. That's much more likely to have a marketplace and, and a regular returns than philanthropy. Philanthropy is disrupted by just about anything, right, coming along. Uh, and it's, it's a very hard marketplace to build uh, oneself around. In fact, you know, giving to nonprofits is really only about two. 20% of total revenue to nonprofit. I mean, most revenue coming into nonprofits is fee for service revenue, the government being the biggest buyer of services. And they happen to be buying the services that are your mission. But what we're suggesting is that there could be, like Goodwill and their thrift shops or the YMCA and their um, gyms, or, you know, uh, there's a ton of examples out there. In fact, theaters, you know, earned revenue through selling of tickets is, is an exchange. Um, it happens to be mission focused. But if your theater wanted to buy, start buying uh, laundromats, you know, so long as you're paying, uh, you know, uh, unrelated business income tax on it, what, if you have an asset and a capacity to, to do something with that, is it, uh, if it creates margin and it fuels your mission uh, and it's something that you can, um, uh, that you can build a, a business model around that is um, sustainable, uh, why wouldn't we encourage uh, laundromats? You know? All right, Josh, yeah. you're good at this. Yeah. You've just articulated uh, a really good, uh, you've made a lot of great points there, but I'm, I'm going to insist at least for another minute that yes. there is some risk, right? And it, oh, sure. it relates to um, a common scenario that I've seen more than once is the situation where a nonprofit is eligible for a grant and the grant requires the doing of a certain thing and then the nonprofit takes on, using its limited yes. resources, it directs its energies and its money and its yes. volunteer hours toward this project that is, you know, related, yes. <laughs> to, but that the the purpose of which is to get the grant. Like we're going to do a thing Agreed. to get a grant, uh, right? And, 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 on the same page and we've you. done it and mm -hmm. it's not, you know, it's sometimes it's worth doing. You, you weigh the, the pros and the cons and you see yep. if, it, you know, is it all, is it an unrelated venture that um, fulfills our mission and creates margin and all that. Yeah. But it strikes me that there is the possibility of risk in the sense of a misdirection of your resources, a losing of your way. If, yes. you're, if you're not firmly rooted in your mission, I mean, I, I talked about mission and you, and you said, well, mission can change, you know, I mean, you got to, you know, flex all the great companies have undergone great change. But at the same time, the whole point of having a mission is to serve as some kind of a check on what you're getting yourself into. Right. Uh, absolutely. So uh, let me codify, uh, couch a little bit. So I think in the moment, right. Um, any anytime you you step away from your mission and your brand are very much aligned right so we think of the nonprofits in our community we think of what they do right so as you move away from the thing that you do you are taking on brand risk you're taking on you know that mission creep construct is less about the fact that we it, it's just the opportunity cost to do that is not to do something else right so 
I would not advocate and never do chasing uh, funds. I do advocate for thinking purposefully about building a earned revenue strategy uh, that will take you time to build. You have to commit to it. You have to decide, you know, we're doing laundromats. We're not going to take this as a grant to do laundromats for six months and then go back to business as usual. If we're going to take the grant, if we're going to do the thing, we have to, we're making some commitments to a business model and a business. Um, so, you know, just like you and I, we might take on new business lines and new services uh, as small businesses uh, with an eye towards testing it, seeing if it works, if we like it, and then building around it. And I think nonprofits can uh, can similarly do that. At the same time, I definitely, I don't wanna say like, you know, missions change. Missions change over time. Missions change as a function of trend line and of long-term change. Uh, and so I think it's the difference between, you know, a near-term decision you have to make about whether or not with limited resources to pursue something that seems radically off, you know, our mission versus we are taking, placing small bets around new strategies that could long-term build a sustainability for our core enterprise. And if you can sort of justify, you know, doing uh, some things, you know, not everything, and you can only do a couple, you can only place small bets on a couple things, you know, maybe in a, in a five-year strategic plan, you only got one or two risks that you're willing to take. Um, can I tell you something yeah. about a five-year strategic plan? Sure. My favorite five-year strategic plan that I ever saw is something that you worked on for one of my favorite nonprofits in Charlotte called Girls Rock. Mm-hmm. It was, I'm a former board member of Girls Rock. Anybody who doesn't know about Girls Rock needs to know about Girls Rock. It's a, a company that uh, puts on, the main part of what they do is put on camps for girls over the summer where they form rock bands and perform them. And it's all about um, empowering girls and uh, improving the lives of girls and people who identify as girls. And um, I love it. I love it a great deal. Uh, but when I got involved in that organization, you had, done some work for them in the past and you put together, you helped them put together a five-year plan. And my favorite thing about it was that it had built in years of just sustaining of, you know, whatever. I don't even remember what the steps were, but it was like, we're going to do a bunch of stuff in year one. And then we're going to like normalize, just keep that going in year two. Like we're not. And I think one of the biggest mistakes that, uh, organizations sometimes make, and I've been part of organizations that have made this mistake. It's natural to do yep. you know, is, is to just go full bore, just full growth mode all the time yep. and to never like take a break from always trying to get better and just try to always or try to solidify and stabilize and just be solid. And yep. you built that into, I say you, I mean, you collectively as a group built that into the five-year plan. I thought that was, uh, that was a great idea. Is that something you often uh, will counsel? Definitely for emerging organizations. I mean, the, the smaller you are, the more change is your biggest enemy. So as you aspire to grow and do new and different things ambitiously, the downside of all of that is that things have to change, necessarily have to change. You know, what was once a small group of volunteers starts to take on professional staff, starts to take on multi-location, starts to, all that risk comes with it also changed. And we have, culturally, um, we have to normalize change uh, within the nonprofit construct. Again, because there's so many different audiences that, that make up the community, the constituency. So it's not just about as executive director, I'm ready for that change. Or as a board, we're ready for that change. Are the people we serve, are our volunteers, is the community ready for that change? So definitely that kind of stair step. You know, when we feel like we have something figured out as our core self, you know, the belief that we should seek to grow a year, let's say, and then normalize that growth uh, for a year and then take another climb and then normalize, climb, normalize. That's typically how we scale the things that we are our core selves. Uh, and then we believe that's actually a slower process for innovation that, you know, we pilot or prototype to begin. Then we build uh, some degree of, of um, core construct around good ideas, and then we scale that. So it's more of like a three or even, you know, four or five year uh, plan until it you know, comes over as a core competency. When it becomes a program we know and understand, now we can really scale it. What it takes, you know, all that growth should be done through a, um, you know, thoughtful process that recognizes that there's an organism, you know, and the organism has a lot of moving parts. It's, you know, I call nonprofits just the absolute messiest construct. Um, but I love, I actually believe so much that the non, because it's collectively owned, it's actually 
we don't believe we own government. We don't. I mean, we we've ceased thinking that government is owned by us, but nonprofits are owned by us. It's 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 a purity of construct that the collective ownership of the nonprofit model is its superpower. Uh, and but it's also messy as heck, like getting people to agree and to actually see that they have a voice and an ownership of it. It it requires you know a, a degree of slow growth. Um, Do you still contend with people who think that? Nonprofit means you're not supposed to make any money. <laughs> yeah, I, I still yeah. have that conversation sometimes. People yeah. are like, "Well, you know, we we are a nonprofit," and I'm just thinking, "Oh my goodness, hate, you I, will be with that attitude, that's for sure." I, I hate the branding. I mean, obviously, you know, nonprofit means no one person profits. Not that you know, um, I, you I, can't get money. You, you right. absolutely I'll, should be getting know, money. I'll, I'll show you the Whitewater Center. You know, a 501c3 nonprofit that is very profitable. I mean. Uh, they generate so much uh, resources that they can reinvest back into their, you know, infrastructure. All the cool G whiz stuff you see out at the Whitewater Centers because they're so darn good at profit generation. We should not be demonizing uh, profit generating by nonprofits because what they generate as profit gets reinvested into their mission. That's not, you know, someone taking that home uh, at the end of the, the the shareholders aren't aren't enriching. Right, themselves. they're not putting out dividends. Well, to... this is this is the thing that I get, you know. So I and I have, you know, folks in my life who have think these things and believe that, you know, a charity CEO. I I read that, you know, this nonprofit leader of a twenty million dollar organization is making two hundred and fifty thousand. I am outraged. Two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Right, and yet we are fine with, you know someone who makes you know sugar water uh that uh you know is creating an obesity uh, epidemic uh, we're fine with that person making you know 50 million dollars right. right and we would think nothing of capitalism because that's that's what capitalism is supposed to do but this person over here who's absolutely killing themselves uh is making you know a modest amount of money in the grand scheme of things for for the um the business model that they're called to that challenge you know what what dan palata uh traces back to the pilgrims you know traces back to puritan you know sort of ideals of like i think it's a problem of measurement i really do yeah. we, we talked about it a little bit but I, I think on both sides of it i think that the way that some of those titans of industry and you know the masters of the universe on wall street the way they justify uh, some of their compensation is based on the way they measure their contribution to the economy how do we communicate uh the the case the case for support, the case for your nonprofit. How do you justify the value proposition that you bring forward is often based on the impact you're making for the people you serve, right? And uh, we have to make a business case and it's usually a long-term business case. It's not a near term. It's not there. It's hard because we're triangulating. You're donating dollars to have an outcome that's not necessarily benefiting you. It's benefiting a third party. What is the value of that? Brings me to the idea of the businesses and nonprofits completely changing the conversation because we were talking about how the millennial aged into being a part of the workforce. The big disruption is now that that millennial is 40 years old, they're starting to invest into an IRA or 401k and they're choosing ethical portfolios to do that. Uh, and so we have the trifecta, you know, the consumer to the employee, now the investor. The investor who's choosing where they put their dollars based on the ethical considerations of that company it is absolutely, you know, upending um, the private sector. They call it ESG, Environment, Social, Governance. Uh, it is the new version of what CSR was set up as a little cottage slush fund is now penetrating and disrupting, you know, much about what's happening inside these companies. And, and if we take it to the logical end that eventually we'll get to that millennial is running that company. Uh, and all the things that they've seen, they heard in the media, that they then trusted that they would see in their workforce, and then began to invest into and make happen, then all these little uh, volunteer days and all these little pieces that have led to the, the um, maturation of that generation and the future generations into making it real will occur. And so it's like language. It's like when we stop using, uh, you know, um, uh, racially or uh, gender specific language we make an that outcome because we are we are modifying in small measure all of those things you know what's going to happen though josh what's that these millennials about whom you're speaking so glowingly yes. are then going to become 
the the boomers of their age, we're, we're going to be gone. <laughs> sure. Well, <laughs> right? exactly. We'll be the, well on The millennials way. will become the entrenched power structure, and the next generation of Josh Jacobson is going to come along and say, hey, you know what? When we'll move the... You, 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 you sold this out, and you sold that out. You weren't true to this principle and that principle, and, yeah, and the process will continue. Yeah, absolutely, and it's not 100%. I mean, we're, we're not going to you know reach the zenith, uh, but what we will do is have moved the needle and moved the... the uh, yardstick that's what i think and it we'll, is well and and that evolutionary model will continue and and you know if you believe in the gene roddenberry you know future that we are technology and our ethics will actually catch up to each other eventually uh you know i'm a believer in that yeah, i believe no, that man, like the goodness I, of people so we have to take the long haul but i'm not one to sit around and wait for you know uh something to happen in fact i believe every time we do something that is a demonstration of social good in practice, even if what's behind the scenes is cynically uh, easy to dismiss. I believe we are creating, you know, small measure impacts. Uh, and so a lot of what we're trying to do is help companies see the bottom line benefits of aligning with nonprofits to workforce, to cause marketing, to workforce pipeline, to the future uh, that they're uh, trying to create for themselves. You know, if you want to go public, you probably are thinking about ESG and you are thinking about, you know, how you're going to align up to those things. Easy to dismiss that and say, ah, that's just a company trying to, you know, um, check a box. But if that, the dollars generated from that and the workforce that believes into it uh, begins to make that change independent of the motivation of why they did it to begin with, the ends justify the means. Josh. I'm certain that we could talk about this all the rest of the day and into the night, um, and we'll just we'll, we'll do it again sometime. Sounds good. For now, I just want to say thank you for being with me today and being a part of the Steve Dunn Podcast. I've uh, been so proud to be on it. Thank you. Thank you.